Uh, I hope you'll, you're still in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 8. I will confess to you, I am not as clairvoyant as it might seem. <laughs> I, it was not by design that uh, on the weekend after the U.S. national election that we would be in Ecclesiastes 8 as I was preparing for this week. I was reading this chapter and <laughs> reading and being, uh, having my eyes widened as I realized how just relevant some of the words to this passage are to where we are in our country, where we are as a church, where we are uh, just in life in general. <laughs> uh, I can't say that that was by design. It's obviously by the Holy Spirit that he would have us here. And I hope that that will be uh, the prevailing uh, sort of notion of this sermon, that it is not my words, it's the Holy Spirit's words, speaking through this text as we enter into perhaps a uh, n- several years or so, maybe perhaps, of chaos, confusion. Um, what a week last week was. <laughs> I uh, found myself uh, breathing deeply many times and just saying, I have no idea what's going on, <laughs> as I'm sure no one else does. Um, but uh, I just think, it, I, I find it so remarkable that God would allow this scripture to come up at this particular time. Uh, the chaos that has um, sort of, and the confusion that abounds in our day, I think is brought to mind, especially as Solomon here is writing in chapter 8, as he's writing about kings and leaders and injustice and how to go about future days. It's hard to know what is true and false nowadays, isn't it? We, we, news outlets, media, social media, all that stuff, they, they combine, I think, to create a wide array of places from which our fear, our, our perhaps our stress, our anxiety can be made to just blossom and balloon into crazy proportions. And I think sometimes as those feelings increase, as we are made to just digest certain things on our television sets, our, oftentimes our dependence on God can be made to decrease to our detriment, to our shame many times. And I think that when things are out of control, when things are out of our hands, they are literally outside of our control, our initial response is to try and do anything we can to get some of that control back through some sort of show of power or through some sort of show of uh, intellect or resilient action, so to speak. We want to get that control back. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a a, a hasty thing to say that we are all control freaks to some degree or another, (laughs) and we want some of that back. As long as we can do something or predict something or show something, we can get that control and we'll feel a little bit less chaotic. And Solomon talks about that here in Ecclesiastes 8. He has observed uh, a couple other times, especially in chapters 3, 4, and in 5, excuse me, um, observe sort of uh, different things about unjust and uh, kings and leaders and how they oppress people that are below them and how this is just so frustrating. He says, this also is vanity. He has seen this, this horrible reality under the sun, and he returns to that subject here at the beginning of chapter 8, but I think what he does is actually quite remarkable because he incorporates this discussion about uh, unjust kings and responding to them into a, a larger sort of conversation about how the wise, or we could say how the, the faithful, how the church should react and should respond to times of inequity and iniquity and injustice. 
And he does that, I think, through four very timely lessons, as I hope to bring about. Four lessons on the Christian's proper response to chaotic times. Let's go through that this morning. So, uh, lesson number one, a lesson about powers. Look at verses two through six. A lesson about powers. He uh, writes here, listen to what he says. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment, because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of a man is great upon him. You can see where Solomon's mind is. And uh, out of these verses come up these questions. What is the wise person to do when unjust powers are in office giving commandments? Literally, they are uttering words of authority. How are we to respond when a king's commandment is uttered that we disagree with? What should our reaction be when authorities initiate decrees that we oppose? These are questions right from Scripture that uh, smack us in the face. (laughs) And I cannot think of a more relevant set of inquiries than for us in this time. And he lays out a few responses in these verses. A couple that aren't so wise and one that is truly wise. You'll notice in verses 2 and 3, he almost has in his, uh, in his mind's eye this image of one who is in the king's court. And notice he says, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Here, he's counseling against this one response against unjust leaders of just deserting, of just going away, of just quitting everything. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. The words of this king... The words that he was commissioned to keep, so to speak, this one in this king's court, were so grating, so disagreeable, that he noticed, Solomon here notices, some just giving up. They're deserting their office. They're deserting the place where God has put them. And he says, this is not wise. Don't be hasty to, and don't hurry out of your position. Don't hurry out of the king's sight. His words, yes, may be some that great upon our convictions. But he says here, don't be hasty, don't be in a hurry to flee out of the king's court. Don't be in such a hurry because of your disgust to flee the place where God has put you. He has put us where and when we are for a very specific reason. So he counsels, verse 2, I counsel thee to keep Observe, that is. Observe the king's words. And that's in regard of the oath of God. We, as those who would, would say that we are a part of the faithful, a part of the church, we have a higher sovereign. One who is above us. And he says here, Solomon says here, that because of that higher sovereign, we can observe the words of the king. We don't need to desert. We don't need to flee and give up the place where God has put us. But he also notices in verses 3 and 4 another sort of reaction that he says is not wise. Notice verse 3, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, 
For he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Here he notices another sort of reaction of those who find the king's words so grating and disagreeable is just this act of defiance. They leave his court and they are so hasty, so quick to get into schemes that are trying to defy the king's words. They, as it says here, stand in evil things. They align themselves with sort of plans of retaliation, plans of revenge. I'm disgusted with what this leader says, and so I'm going to band together with these who also don't like it, and we are going to sort of revolt. We are going to retaliate. He says, don't be in a hurry to do such a thing. Solomon says, this too is not wise. They have been given to kings whether we like them or not, have been given to us, have been given their authority by God. Uh, Pastor Nathan referenced that incredible verse that it's often hard to believe that God sets up kings and he also uh, allows them to uh, be taken down. He is the one who ordains whoever is in authority. Who are we to say, what doest thou? It's hard for us to believe that oftentimes. It's hard for me to believe that. That this authority has been God-ordained. But Solomon says here, don't be in a hurry to align yourself with those who are hastily planning evil things, who are hastily in their guts trying to go against the king's words. In contrast to that, he counsels for uh, actually a third response in this lesson about powers. He says in verses 5 and 6, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Here he counsels for those who are wise, the faithful, the church, be discerning, be discerning about time and judgment. Basically, what he is counseling for is against this sort of rash, reactionary response. And instead, seek to discern, distinguish, and determine both the time and the judgment, both the, the operation and the procedure of all times and events, and patiently endure your time. Because, as he says in verse 6, to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him. We are so much in angst about determining which time we are in. But Solomon is here, is suggesting and counseling, patiently endure. The wise man hearts, discerns his time. Times that have been given to us for a very specific purpose. A purpose that has been given to us by God himself. Solomon here, you have to notice, he is not saying that all acts of defiance are against uh, the Lord. They are uh, disobedient. What he is counseling for is one's uh, reactions shouldn't be hasty, shouldn't be reactionary, shouldn't be such that are just uh, quick to go about, quick to be planned, quick to be schemed. Actually, Solomon counsels patiently endure and know both time and judgment. The wise recognize the purpose of their times and faithfully endure. Whereas the fool, as Solomon here has described, is hurriedly and hastily resisting this. Hoping to revolt, hoping to react, hoping to retaliate. 
A lesson about powers. Patiently endure this time of chaos. But I want to hasten to uh, verses 7 through 9 because here I think we have one of the more profound lessons. A lesson about predictions. Notice what he says in verse 7. For he knoweth not that which shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? You know, another way that we often respond to chaotic times is to make predictions about what the future times will hold. It's not just about resisting authorities and standing up to king's words. Uh, One of the other ways we try to regain control is by making a lot of predictions about what will happen in the future, or at least pretending like we have that ability. And this thinking, I think, is sound. I, I think the logic runs something like this, that, that, that all of the chaos of our present days and present age, it, all of it surprises us. It catches us off guard. These things that are coming about, we open our phones and we check our news feeds and there's some new scandal that hits us in the face, some new uh, ter- sense of turmoil, some new piece of news that causes us to be surprised. So... In response to that, if we can know what the days ahead might hold, if we can accurately predict the future, then we won't be as surprised. We won't be as caught off guard. The chaos will be in, quote, in control, because then we will be able to say, see, I told you, I knew this was going to happen. Predictions make us feel a little bit more comfortable. Because they allow us to sort of reclaim that feeling that our times are not outside of our control, they're within our control. Because we are able to forecast the future. But the problem with that is, as Solomon says here, no one can do that. No one can predict the future. No one can predict what the days ahead might hold. As he says, therefore, he knoweth not what, which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man, verse 8, that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. All this I have seen. And applied my heart into every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. No one can predict the future. We noticed this last week, but I think it bears repeating because it's so profound, I think, in this text, which is this. Who has jurisdiction over future days? Not you. Not me. I certainly don't. (laughs) The only one who has jurisdiction over the days ahead is God. He's the only one that has that kind of authority. As Solomon here is indicating, trying to predict the future is as impossible as trying to, as he says here, retain the spirit or capture the wind in the palm of your hand. It's that impossible. Or as he continues, it's as impossible as trying to prevent the day of your death. It cannot be done. No one has that kind of sway. No one has that kind of authority. You, are, you don't, I don't. This hasn't stopped us. We still like to predict things and hold on to the hope of our predictions. If you can believe it, there's a really good paragraph that applies directly to this moment that came out of a writer writing in the New York Times. Um, And he writes this. I want to read this paragraph because I find the picture that he paints so profound. He says, 
People facing immediate danger want to hear an authoritative voice they can draw assurance from. They want to be told what will occur, how they should prepare, and that all will be well. We, as humans, are not well designed to live in uncertainty. (laughs) The human or the history of humanity is the history of impatience. Not only do we want knowledge of the future, we want it when we want it. And at some level, people think that the more they learn about what is predetermined, the more control they will have. This is an illusion. Human beings want to feel that they are on a power walk into the future, when in fact, we are all just tapping our canes on the pavement in the fog. (laughs) We like to think that we can predetermine what the days ahead will hold, as if we have some sort of uh, premonition on what's going to happen, but instead, we are finite human beings, limited by time, limited by energy, limited by understanding. We are tapping our canes in the fog in the future as it approaches. We don't know what lies in that fog. We don't know what lies ahead. We are terrible at predicting the future precisely because we are terrible at being, quote, like God. Solomon, I think, has been decimating that notion throughout this entire book. That as man asserts his authority, as he, as he claims that he can be like God, he is he, everywhere sort of revealing that that is an illusion. This is a mirage. It cannot be done. We are creatures of this earth, bound by time. We cannot process anything without putting it into the currency of days or weeks or minutes or hours or months or years. Yet that hasn't, again, it hasn't stopped us to try, from trying to forecast what will lie ahead in the future. We are still addicted to prediction, we might say. I, I've noticed this, uh, like every, every weekend, if you watch college football, they have an entire morning of what is called a pregame show. And I think this is the most ironic reality as these experts are sitting there talking about games that haven't happened yet and giving their predictions on how 18-year-old and 19-year-old players will play in a football game, which is just hilarious to me because they talk about it for three hours and they give their predictions about what a sports game will do when Literally every single variable possible could make something not live up to that prediction. (laughs) Sports games and sports pregame shows just make me laugh because they're predicting something that they have no idea possibly how that game will come about. I also noticed this too when Natalie and I were living in Florida. Um, We don't get a lot of that up here in Pennsylvania, but the, the, the hurricane spaghetti models... You know, with each hurricane as it is coming to shore, all the experts will give their sort of model of how this hurricane is going to go and whether they're uh, accurately, accurately sort of using math to measure uh, sort of uh, temperature, uh, wind and air temperature and air pressure and all those sorts of things to adjust their model. But you have all these different models of where this hurricane can go. I remember the set, uh, we didn't actually get that many when we were in Florida, but, um, or at least when I was there, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, but the hurricanes would, uh, when they would come and they would be approaching the, the shoreline, you would have all these different models in order to how to judge what you should do. Should we evacuate? Should we bunker down? Should we go on to the other side of the coast? I remember one, we actually evacuated. 
And it ended up missing almost all of Florida anyways. (laughs) Which I just mean to say this. For as much effort, for as addicted as we are at predicting the future, we're not very good at it. We're tapping our canes in the fog. We want to know the future. Because again, we want to have that control. We think that that will give us peace. As if peace comes through predictions and knowing what future days and events will hold. But Solomon says that this is not true. Solomon says that this cannot be done. Just think about... (laughs) If you have learned anything throughout the course of this year, 2020, is that we have zero ability to predict anything. Who would have imagined that 11 months into the year 2020 that this is where we would be? Remember at the beginning of the year, or I I remember, uh, like at the turn of the year, 2019, going into 2020, remember all of the, the different sort of visions for 2020? 2020 vision. Let's have 2020 vision about what we're gonna do, and it's gonna be, All of these different things. If anything, I think this year has been a non-stop tutorial of how futile it is to forecast the future. How many many vacations have been canceled or plans have been had to and forced to change and how many predictions have come up short? 15 days to flatten the curve. All of these things evidence the same thing, that we are terrible at prediction. But we are addicted to it because why? We want to be like God, Genesis 3. We want to have that power. We want to have that authority. And we uh, assert our pride nowhere more than when we boast in our ability to be specific and dogmatic about the future. And here, Solomon is here saying, True wisdom understands its inability to control the future. To control the times through predictions. The truly wise, I think here Solomon is here inferring and suggesting, the truly wise and faithful response to times of chaos is not found in this sort of uh, 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 rapid prediction on what tomorrow might hold, but it is found in resting in the one who holds tomorrow. The one whose authority and jurisdiction extends through eternity. By resting in the one who is not bound by past, present, or future. He is not bound by time itself. He is outside of it. He is the one who holds everything in the palms of his hands. Which leads me to a third lesson. A lesson about powers. A lesson about predictions. And look at verses 10 through 14. A lesson about paradoxes. As we try to assert our control by predicting, he also notices this. He notices a very particular paradox, a a struggle, a problem that persists in our day. Notice verse 10. And so I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had had so done. This also is vanity, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Here he lays out perhaps the most devastating way that we respond to chaos. 
is literally to give in to the paradoxes of the world. And what does that mean? Well, notice verse 14, where he says, There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. This is one of the most frustrating verses of Ecclesiastes. He's describing something that is incredibly unfair, incredibly nonsensical. It's literally an egregious paradox that the just could receive the reward of the wicked and the wicked could receive the reward of the just. He's describing this in a way in which he says this is frustrating. And he continues, as we already read in verses 10 and 11, and this could lead many to assume that because of this seeming patience for the wicked, that it's giving them permission to do it. Notice he says again in verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The wicked are proceeding in their wickedness without obvious consequence or without obvious sentence for what they have done. And here he notices the heart of the sons of men is actually given in to this paradox. The wicked are living in seeming prosperity. So I guess that means it's okay to do what they're doing. I guess that means that I have permission to proceed and to partner with them in their wickedness. Might as well give up. Might as well give in to this incredibly frustrating reality of life under the sun. Might as well quit. Obviously, because the wicked receive the reward of the just. How many times have you thought something like that? Might as well surrender to this paradox. I keep trying to be faithful. I keep trying to do what is right and good and moral and ethical. And it doesn't seem like any of those things are getting me what I think I deserve. Someone here, however, reveals the foolishness of thinking of such things by giving us a solemn but hopeful reminder. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Patience for the wicked. Delays in enforcing their sentence is not permission to partner with them or to continue in what they are doing. As he says here, to do evil like they are. As he says here, remember, remember what is coming for them. Remember what is on the horizon for them that are wicked and living in wickedness and persisting in their wickedness. They are doomed for eternity. It shall not be well. A nice way of saying they are destined for eternal unhappiness. Right now, in the present, they seem to be enjoying a season of prosperity, a season of reaping the rewards of the just. But that is not their eternal destiny. That is not what will ultimately be their eternity. 
As he says here, instead of giving in, instead of giving into this paradox and surrendering your life because it's so frustrating and we can't get around it, and instead of giving up because of this paradox of wickedness, Solomon counsels the wise there in verse 12, fear God. Fear this one. This one who holds judgment in his hands. This one, as he says, who will judge the wicked in their day. A healthy fear of God's of God means trusting in his judgments of all things and not our ability to judge things for ourselves. The wicked will have their day before the judge, and guess what? That judge is not you. <laughs> fear God. Fear the judge. Don't let the present paradoxes of this life under the sun rob you of your eternal perspective. I think of the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above and not on things of earth. Don't be devastated by seeing the paradox of wickedness. Keep your mind on the things of heaven where Jesus sits on the right hand of the throne of God as the only and true authority of all things under the sun. He is the judge. The judge who has become your father. Fear him. Keep your eyes on eternity. Don't let them be encumbered by all of the problems and paradoxes that persist. That persist here. And how do we do that? Well, that brings me to the last lesson in our text. A lesson about peace. Notice... Well, let me ask this. With all of that, we have our inability to rightly respond oftentimes to powers that are set up. And it is incredibly frustrating. It's vanity, as Solomon says. And our inability to predict the future. We don't know what is coming ahead and we have no ability to accurately predict that. And there's this paradox that seems incredibly frustrating that makes life seem so vain. What are we to do then? In times of chaos, where is our place of comfort and peace in a life that is so filled with fear and corruption? In the face of all of these things, in the face of things that we cannot understand, the things that we cannot control, in the face of things that we cannot change, where is peace found? It's found in the gifts and promises of God. Notice verse 15. He says, Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. This to me is a beautiful verse. Because he's reminding his readers and perhaps even reminding himself that all of the things that he can enjoy, God has given him. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith, is this. The beauty of the Christian faith is that we have a God who doesn't make predictions, he makes promises. And God's promises are infinitely better than any of our plans or any of our predictions about what the future may hold. 
And even more than that, God always keeps his promises. There hasn't been one that has failed. There hasn't been one that he hasn't fulfilled. There hasn't been one that he has left unfinished. All of them are filled. And yes, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Our God makes promises, not predictions. This is the fact that doesn't change, no matter what the future may hold. Yes, kings and kingdoms, they will come and go. Presidents and leaders, they will come and go. Some will be elected, some will perhaps be taken out of office, but God's promises are never changing. Peace in times of chaos, comes from remembering what God has promised. And what has he promised? Matthew 28, 20, that he will be with us to the end of the world. He has promised to be the one who goes before us. A promise given to our ancestors in Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail, nor forsake thee. What has he promised? He has promised to take care of all of our tomorrows. Let me read you that wonderful passage. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down or you can follow along. It's Matthew 6. This extended dialogue where he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end of it, we have these, or in the middle of it, in Matthew chapter 6, we have these wonderful verses. Jesus speaking, therefore, verse 25, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body. What ye shall put on is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, to- they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore? If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what sh- withal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I love these verses. (laughs) I love how Jesus is playing on the emotions at the human level. He understands that we have these things that appear so grating and so apparent that we have to decide them. We have to control them. What is going to happen? What happens if we aren't going to be able to clothe ourselves or feed ourselves? He's not saying that we shouldn't be responsible, but he's saying, trust your tomorrows for the one who holds them. Trust what shall be in tomorrow for the one who is already in it, who is already sovereign in it and over it. This is what God has promised. This is what God has promised to us. 
Because we have a God who makes promises, not predictions. And he always fulfills them. This is what God has insisted on. This is what gives us peace in the midst of chaotic times. And this peace, it extends far beyond what we see in the moment. It can be hard. I confess that to you. It can be hard to believe that there is this that is true in our present moment. But it is. Precisely because our peace is not bound to things under the sun. It's not bound to events or people or places or things or any of those things. It is bound. Our peace is tied and intricately tethered to the one who is above the sun. Who, the one who rules over all things in heaven and earth. The one who knows the end from the beginning. The one who can bring life out of death. And the one who promises in Jeremiah 31 to bring happiness out of grief. Our peace is tied to that person. Small commercial. On Sunday nights, we've been going through 1 Peter. And we've seen what our hope is tied to. As, first Pe- as Peter says in the first chapter, it's tied to this one who is a lively hope. You know what that literally means? It's a hope that has breath in its lungs and blood in its veins. Namely, our hope and peace is tied to a man named Jesus Christ, who is the king over all things, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what our peace is tied to. Not predictions. Not retaliation. Not giving in and surrendering to the paradoxes of the world. Our peace does not come from any of those things. Our peace is found and experienced to the degree that we give up our ability to accomplish those things and rest in God's absolute absolute authority over all of those things. He is the one who rules all of the days, who is sovereign over all of the times, and whose control over all things has never yet abated. This is true wisdom. I would say the truly wise and faithful response to chaos. It comes not from trying to be right and in control all the time, but from knowing the one who is. I'm going to close with this extended passage. I wrote it down because I was struck by it. Isaiah chapter 40. You want to know who rules your days? You want to know the extent of his power? Listen to these verses. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Notice. The prophet here is emphasizing the gentleness and compassion of this one that he is about to explode into sovereign might and authority. Because you see, the same shepherd who gently holds us is the same master of everything. Notice what he says. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? The obvious answer is no one. 
With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the, as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver change. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Hath ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers." that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them by all names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. We have this incredible view of God. He considers nations, as it says there, as less than nothing. And the inhabitants of the earth as grasshoppers. We are minuscule things. And yet God deals gently with us. This is his promise. Because he knows that this one who doesn't faint, this one that we cannot even search the, the extent of his understanding, notice it says, he giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. He exercises his absolute authority on your behalf. This is his promise. And his promises never fail. He always keeps them. Peace in chaotic times doesn't come from powers or predictions or paradoxes. It comes from the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.